Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, uh, brought to you by The Dispatch, which you can find at thedispatch.com, where you can sign up for newsletters, check out podcasts, um, learn to, you know, cook 12-minute brownies in seven minutes, all sorts of exciting things. Uh, please sign up. Please subscribe. Please join in. Um, your support literally means everything to us. So today we are going to do another one of our sort of deep dives on an issue um, uh, that is not necessarily, well, it's sort of always in the news in one way or another, but is not tied to the headlines. And we're going to talk about with Keith Whittington. Keith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, what is your actual title? Like, where are you? I am head? the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University. Okay. Um, no relation to the other Cromwell? Uh, not to my knowledge, but I don't know for sure. Um, you should probably look into that. Maybe I should. I, I looked into it only to the extent I know he was a, a Gilded Age lawyer for plutocrats, and so I thought... You're kind of guy. To me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sort of proud to wear that badge. Um, and you have a new book out called Repugnant Laws, Judicial Review of Acts of Congress from the Founding to the Present. You are also... Um, uh, someone of wide esteem among my coterie of legal beagle brain trusters who I talk to about to have explained to me these strange constitutional law questions and all of the rest. And they were all very excited that you were here. So um, their excitement is contagious. That's Thank you for coming. It's always good to hear. I appreciate it. And I am a, a longtime admirer of both the podcast and the dispatch. I'm not a longtime admirer of dispatch since it's relatively new, but I appreciate to be here where the magic is made. It is It is truly magical. Um, so uh, I figured what we would do, because you were kind of, you, you sort of straddle three different worlds, particularly in this book, in that you are political scientist, sort of constitutional law expert guy, and mm -hmm. historian. Yeah, right? sure. Um, sort of. Let me start sort of setting up things. There's this thing called judicial review, yeah. where which was established according to my high school textbook by Marbury versus Madison. Right, and it gives it is from wit from whence the Supreme Court derives its ability to uh, rule or negate rule upon the constitutionality of acts of Congress um, and laws, and also acts of the the of the president of the president as well, and um, uh, part of your argument is that, it, well, you tell me, did Marbury versus Madison, did it, did the judicial review spring from Marbury versus Madison like a lightning bolt from the forehead of Zeus or where does it come from? Uh, so it definitely didn't spring from, uh, the head of, of John Marshall in, in Marbury. Um, although that is a common story that gets told, um, mm -hmm. and does make its way into textbooks. Um, in part, it was a sort of progressive argument in the early 20th century that John Marshall just made this up. Um, and, and that was part of an effort to say the court therefore should stop doing it, um, because they just made it up. Um, but on the other hand, judicial review um, does emerge sort of gradually, and it's not entirely clear where it fits within the constitutional scheme. So the Constitution doesn't specify there's a power of judicial review. Um, it's inferred from the structure of the Constitution that there's some kind of power like this. Um, even the term judicial review um, doesn't arise until the turn of the 20th century when it gets coined by 
one of my predecessors at Princeton, Edward Corwin, um, lots of people were trying to figure out the right name to talk about this power the court's exercising. Um, so it is a weird practice. The court has sort of developed gradually over the course of its history, but that the court had used even before Marbury and that state courts had also used, some lower federal courts had used uh, prior to Marbury as well. So um, is there... So, but there is there anything like in the Constitutional Convention minutes that discusses this? I mean, or does it really just emerge um, sort of spontaneously in a Hayekian sense, not suddenly, yeah. right, yeah. over time? Um, there's some discussion both in ratification debates and a little bit in the convention that seems to anticipate um, judicial review. Um, not a lot, in, in part because no one expects judicial review is going to be a very important part of constitutional practice. Mm-hmm. Um they are thinking about other features of checks and balances as far more important than what courts are going to do. Um, but there's a lot of background assumptions that, that suggest that people are anticipating that there's going to be something like judicial review. There's already some experience in the state courts under state constitutions um, that the framers of the, of the federal constitution are familiar with um, that anticipates judicial review. And there's some language in the constitution itself um, that seems to assume that there's going to be judicial review, even if they don't talk about judicial review per se. So it just strikes me as, you know, I'm just a poor country lawyer guy um, without a law degree. <laughs> but it just it does strike me as weird that arguably the, if not the most important, then one of the most important, I'll, I'll go with the most important enforcement mechanism of constitutional fidelity right. was not discussed and laid out in any detail by the people right. who wrote the Constitution. Right. That would surprise people, wouldn't it? It is. I, it's a little weird. <laughs> it's, uh, and partially it does reflect the fact they aren't thinking very seriously about it. They don't expect that to be the primary tool for enforcing the Constitution. So they're imagining other mechanisms being much more important. Um, it's also a sense in which, um, and some scholars more recently really argued this, that, that um, they think of it as so natural it's not worth talking about, that of mm. course this comes um, along with having a written Constitution that we're going to take as actual uh, supreme law, that of course something like this practice uh, will flow out of it. So it's not worth actually writing into the text the way you write a presidential veto into the text, for example, which obviously wouldn't be there except for the fact that you include it. The assumption is, well, if you create a written constitution that's fundamental law and you create a court um, to interpret that constitution, then of course the next thing that follows is something like what we call judicial review. You know, lately I've been kind of an obsessive about Congress uh, gelding itself and yeah. shedding its constitutional powers and all the rest. Sure. My understanding, and you're the guy to ask, is that it used to be that Congress itself used to weigh in on the constitutionality of laws all the time. And as a matter of parliamentary procedure, if you raise the question of whether or not you appealed the constitutionality of the proposed legislation, if that won like on a voice vote or something, That killed it, right? That was a way to yeah. kill legislation. Could it have been that the founders intended that these other ins- – I'll put it, yeah. put it another way. Does judicial Has judicial review had the impact of siphoning off constitutional fidelity from the other branches because if they're not responsible for upholding it, they just – they basically just kick the can to the Supreme Court on everything? I think that's absolutely a worry. And so uh, one question is to the extent to which the court is causing that or to what degree the court is responding to that, right? And so um, uh, certainly early Congresses um, 
And by early, really extending all through the 19th century, Congress was willing to have serious constitutional debates and really think seriously about constitutional issues. Um, less so in the 20th century, it sort of drifts away. Um, likewise, presidents took um, the Constitution seriously. So when there's presidents who are thinking about whether or not to sign legislation all through the 19th century, or at least the early part of the 19th century, presidents are thinking seriously about, um, is this actually constitutional and should I veto it right. um, if it's not a lot of those presidents actually wrote the Constitution, so they right. Some of, the, it a some of the very early presidents do, and but you see presidents continuing to exercise a veto power on the grounds that the law is unconstitutional or has some constitutional problems until late in the 19th century. And in the 20th century, again, the presidents have abandoned that too. Um, and so both Congress and the president wind up sort of punting and saying, well, the courts will clean it up. Um, I don't have to actually stick my neck out um, and vote against a bill that might be popular with my constituents or veto a bill that might be popular with my constituents. Um, I'll let the courts do it instead. Um, so there is some push from the political branches of we're not going to take the responsibility seriously, let somebody else do it. And then there's also sort of a worry that have the courts encourage that attitude um, by being so active. Um, so there was a Harvard law professor in the late 19th century who wrote this famous article encouraging the court to be much more deferential and part precisely in order to encourage Congress to be more active mm-hmm. um, in actually taking its constitutional responsibility seriously. Um, but it's a big bet that if the courts actually backed out, would Congress actually um, pick up the slack? Um, so another thing I learned in my high school textbook was that the Supreme Court basically didn't rule on constitutional matters basically except for Marbury versus Madison and like Dred Scott, right, right? Right. Part of your argument is that you have, tell us about this data set that you've compiled and why this is not in fact true. Yeah, so my starting point for thinking about this uh, project was, um, I, initially I thought I was gonna write a relatively small and quick book on um, how the court has exercised judicial review relative to Congress across time. Um, but as I sat down and started thinking about it, I realized I didn't have a very firm grasp of what I thought would be the full range of how, Cong- uh, how the court has done that. Um, Certainly not a sense of when the court has upheld laws against um, constitutional challenge. We don't have or did not have um, any kind of uh, list of, of cases that look like that. And we had a list of cases in which the court had struck down acts of Congress as being unconstitutional. Um, but there are some reasons to think that might have been incomplete. And so I wound up going back and then just uh, trying to develop a new uh, list of cases in which the court seriously evaluated the constitutionality of the application of a federal statute, either to uphold it or ultimately to narrow it or strike it down, um, and really did that from scratch. And so read sort of tens of thousands of cases, trying to find the ones that might fit um, in this box. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I, I had regrets at various <laughs> points. And, um, um, and really, if I knew uh, how much I was getting myself into, I probably never yeah. would have started it. But um, Were you ever like Ron Burgundy in the bear pit? Just like, I immediately regret my decision. Absolutely. <laughs> There's, there are definitely elements of that, and um, including reading a lot of early 19th century cases and just scratching your head trying to figure out what the heck are these people have been talking about and what are they doing here. And so yeah. uh, there was a lot of that going on. Um, but I'm a bit of a completist, and so once I start something, I, I have a really hard time stopping. And yeah. so, so I felt the need you to continue. that in common with a lot of serial killers. It's yeah, no, exactly. Out, yeah. That's, you know, so it works okay in some contexts, maybe less well in other contexts. Um, but um, so ultimately, then I wound up with a data set of about 1,300 cases, uh-huh. and I think fit this category, and um, which is now publicly available on my uh, website. I think it does modify the story dramatically as to how often the court has actually exercised the power to review, and it fills in a massive gap on the side of how often has the court upheld acts of Congress against constitutional challenge. But I think it actually revises a story as well on how often has the court struck down acts of Congress, and so this instance of what's happening in between 
Marbury in 1803 and Dred Scott in 1857 is an example of that where the classic story is the court was never striking anything down during this period. Um, again, the Republicans and likewise the populists and progressives used that as evidence the court should stop striking stuff down because it was so rare. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out I think the court actually was quite often um, uh, limiting uh, Congress on constitutional grounds during that time period. The, the kinds of cases they were doing it in were not politically controversial cases. No one cared mm-hmm. very much about the substance of those cases. And so they really flew b- below the radar. But if you go back and look at old treatises, for example, where people are talking about what are the constitutional restrictions on Congress, what are the constitutional limits, these kind of cases would wind up being included in those. People knew that this identified where the boundaries of constitutional law were. Um, but then later when people started trying to compile lists of cases of judicial review, um, they tend to just fall off the list. Yeah. So, I mean, it's 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 a, it's a weird thing to me. Um, I'm always sort of fascinated by examples of when conventional wisdom among experts gets completely overturned, right? I mean, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, I just saw you take a sip of water. For most of my life, I was told you had to drink eight glasses of water today. It turns out that's a complete myth that has this really right. weird backstory to it, right? Um, uh, when I was working on my first book and all my life I had heard that Father Coughlin was this crazy right-winger and then you right. go back and read what he was actually proposing and yeah, he was an anti-Semite, but you know, you can look it up. There, there are left-wing anti-Semites too. Um, his proposal was way to the left of FDR and yeah, all that kind right. of stuff, right? Um, so this idea that um, that the Supreme Court never weighed in or exercised its 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 powers of judicial review um, is that largely um, part of a political project from the progressives? Where does that come from? Um, I think it's a political project that predates the progressives, but it certainly is a progressive political project um, as well. And so, uh, so for example, you see um, uh, Republicans in Congress uh, during the Civil War and Reconstruction who are very unhappy with the Supreme Court at the time because mm-hmm. um, it's still the court associated with slavery um, from their perspective, um, arguing that the court never strikes down laws and Dred Scott was some weird outlier mm-hmm. um, and as a consequence would be really illegitimate for the court to ever do it again. Um, the populists and progressives in the late 19th and early 20th century take this up, and you then start getting um, really around the 1880s, people for the first start time start trying to compile a list of how often has the court actually struck down a law. Um, and and that was very tied into a political project. And mm-hmm. so the argument over those lists tended to be um, both scholarly and political, where you'd have conservatives having longer lists and saying right. the court has struck down more laws than you think, and the populists and progressives have very short lists saying, no, no, they've hardly ever struck things down, and this was seen as part of a battle over well, how legitimate is it for them to continue doing it um, into into the future. Um, we've sort of settled on a coherent list um, that the Congressional Research Service maintains it was actually done by one of my predecessors at Princeton University, Edward Corwin, put it together um, at the request of Congress in the early part of the 20th century. And that sort of stabilized that debate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't know until I started this project how much debate there actually was sort of in a few decades there where people genuinely disagreed about just how many cases are on the list and which cases belonged on that list. Right. And so, I mean, just to be clear about it, the reason why people would like to claim that the Supreme Court doesn't have this power is that that gives much freer reign to temporary majorities that have the popular will on their side. They get to do what they want. You know, that is very much a a progressive argument, right? I mean, Woodrow Wilson was this guy, as listeners know, I hate with this (laughs) passion, 
Um, he was the first president to openly disparage the Bill of Rights, right. disparage the Constitution, disparage the sort of Newtonian function of the Constitution. And it was deeply bound up in this idea that there shouldn't be hindrances to his power or to progressive power or the state power. Yeah. Um, and um, so with that in mind, we, we're, we now have judicial review, sure. right? There's no debate about that right. any longer, right? right? Um, what is the future of judicial review, do you think? I mean, how, how much has the Supreme Court been using it of late? Are they more likely or less likely? Um, what do the numbers tell you? I think it's a bit of a good question as to what the future of judicial review looks like. Um, uh, one thing that feeds into that debate about the progressives and populists uh, in the early 20th century is that for a very long period of time, the political left thought that there was nothing in it for them um, to have judicial review. Right. They thought that was just a loser, that, that the court was going to be conservative, um, that the Constitution itself was conservative, um, and so it would only work against them. It would never work for them. And as a consequence, they were very hostile to the very notion of it. And it was conservatives who were defending the power of judicial review and trying to build it up um, all through the 19th century and into the early 20th century. Um, that doesn't change very much until after the New Deal, really. Mm -hmm. And suddenly a bunch of liberals get on board the project of judicial review and say, oh, well, it turns out actually there's some uses here. Um, there's some things that would benefit us ultimately. And then since then, it's been a bipartisan project where both the political right and the political left complained about some kinds of cases, but they thought in general, having a power like this is sometimes going to help us. And so we ought to be supportive of it. Um, we might be entering a period now where the political left is once again convinced there's nothing in it for them. Mm -hmm. um, and as a consequence, they ought to be hammer and tong fighting um, against judicial review and just trying to tear down the courts um, in general. Um, it would be a significant reversal of many decades of the left being on board um, the power of courts. Um, but it's not impossible that that's where we could find ourselves and with a relatively stable conservative majority on the court for a while um, and uh, liberals being increasingly or maybe I should say the political left, not necessarily liberals per se, increasingly unhappy with the idea of rights and how to think about rights in general, mm -hmm. you can imagine just backing away from the whole project of judicial review and really becoming once more a conservative um, argument that we ought to have courts and the left instead just says we ought to get rid of them and we ought to just emphasize elections and legislatures. Yeah, I mean, my colleague David French points this out often that it'll be very interesting to see all these people who are bemoaning the Trump administration's real or alleged, we don't have to get into that right now, um, uh, violence against democratic norms and democratic institutions and all these kinds of things, um, and the rule of law, how they respond when a district court in Texas overrules or invalidates vast sweeping parts of the Sanders or Warren presidency's agenda, right? Are they all of a sudden going to be saying, oh, well, that was a Trump judge, so therefore it's not valid, or are they going to be saying that the courts have no role in this? It'll be interesting. I mean, so you're another good person to ask. There's another thing I want to ask you. There are two things that are sort of obsessions of mine I want to ask you about. One is when I try to do sort of a, you know, a history of progressive politics mm. in one minute, the argument I always make is, Progressives always go where the ball, where the where the field is open, right? They carry the ball where the field is open, and so, at the end of the nineteenth century, you have uh, in the beginning of the twentieth, you have people like Wilson talking about how Congress needs to be supreme. Then it dawns on him that he might be president, so all of a sudden he thinks the president's supreme. Uh, when things like uh, popular elections seem to be on the progressives of the populist side, they were in favor of that. When that stopped being the case, 
Um, they went back to the imperial presidency under uh, FDR. Then they said, oh, no, it needs to be the sort of the disinterested um, bureaucrats. And then uh, in the 60s with the rights revolution and then the Warren Court in the 70s and all that kind of stuff, you get, no, it's the courts who are the champions of all this stuff. But it's always whatever institution or mechanism allows them to implement their vision. Is right. that basically right? or? Well, I think it's an old story in American politics in general. It's not just, I think, the left or the progressives uh -huh. that make that move. I think in general, people have very weak attachments to particular institutions or uh, procedures in general. And I think that extends to thinking about uh, uh, due process, but even free speech uh, issues, for example. I had a book a couple of years ago, Speak Freely on Campus Free Speech Issues, mm -hmm. As you see the same dynamic occurring, right, where um, at one point the left would have been very happy with protecting free speech because it benefited them to the extent they start thinking it's getting in their way. They're quick to shed that. Um, you've seen the right flip-flop on mm -hmm. free speech issues as well. Um, and you see it likewise in thinking about the presidency and Congress and federalism, for example, um, as well, where um, if we control the institution, then it's a great institution. We ought to build it up. If we don't control the institution, it's a terrible institution. We ought to tear it down. Um, and sometimes that sh shifts on a dime. Uh, yeah. How people think about those things. And so it's been very tough, I think, for anyone to be very stable and, and consistent about thinking, no, no, this is actually an institution that we really ought to continue to protect. It's very instrumental in how people tend to think about these things. All right, we're going to come back to that in a second. But first, the other obsession I have, and now that Jack Butler is no longer here, he can't stop me from asking it. <laughs> um, and I've told him that I will keep asking this until I get the answer I want. <laughs> um, um, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh -huh. Okay. Do you think that if the political environment were not run by progressives seeking progressive legislation and whatnot, um, that he would have been the champion of judicial restraint that he was? So that's a good question. Um, um... You know, I don't. I guess I don't know enough about Holmes himself to to have a very firm answer on that. Um, I, I'm a bit inclined to think that he might well have been the same. Uh -huh. um, he did seem to have sort of deeper commitments to that, and he was not always happy with um, what was emerging out of legislatures and what was emerging out of the political left uh, in that regard. And so he was somewhat consistent, being willing to uphold um, laws that he uh, thought pretty dubious. I don't think he would have been celebrated in the same way. And sure. so so you might imagine Holmes himself would be pretty uh, much the same, but um, how everybody responds to Holmes and thinks about Holmes would have been radically different if um, things had played out differently. Um, I don't know if Holmes, though, himself personally was, was um, uh, quite that instrumental. And that's and that's one feature, I think, of judges and, and the court in general, that, that politicians are very quick to abandon ship on yeah. particular institutions um, and and whether they like Congress or the president or federalism, for example. Um, I think judges actually do tend to be a little more consistent. They have mm -hmm. more principled views. They're more deeply rooted in particular institutions. Um, they do tend to stick to um, their guns a little longer, um, even when it seems like it may not work in their favor. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if Holmes is sort of in that same category where they there, there are some principles in his context that are relatively deep that he's willing to stick to in ways that elected politicians just aren't. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the best example that comes to mind about the Holmes thing was Buck v. Bell, yeah, right? yeah. where uh, Holmes, who had a correspondence with Sidney Webb, he believed in eugenics, he believed right. in, you know, all this kind of stuff. He rules in a really, I mean, I, I right. don't, I'm not a good constitutional scholar or anything like that, but. It was a bad opinion. Yeah. I mean, on the merits and also on the reasoning, it cited like one sure. public health law. Right. 
to allow the state of Virginia to forcibly, against her will, sterilize Carrie Buck. Right. And afterwards, he wrote a letter saying, I think I've got, finally gotten to the heart of true reform or whatever right, right. Um, by allowing this. It seems to me that if, you know, th- that was an example, first of all, it was not judicial restraint yeah. <laughs> by my lights, but it was also that he came into it with certain preconceived notions. And I just, I've been obsessed with this for a long no, time. No, he's he's clearly sympathetic to um, that particular project as well as others, although strikingly about eugenics and, and Buck v. Bell, he was hardly alone, right? Sure, it, sure, sure. It was, a, it was a very prominent position, not only politically, but also lots of courts that were hearing those cases were also approving it. Yep. And so um, he was well within the mainstream in yep. that sense on, on that. Uh, I think it was an eight project. to one decision. There was one it was, Catholic and, conservative who was And there were it. state courts that heard similar kinds of claims and they tended to uphold those um, uh, those kinds of laws um, on, in, under state constitutional provisions um, as well. Um, it's sort of a remarkable and depressing period if yeah. you want to sort of think about um, a set of laws that um, uh, are, are deeply troubling and yet um, mainstream elite opinion uh, was uh, actively supportive of those policies right. um, and courts were not at all getting in the way of them. So um, before we get off of this specific stuff, the... Um um, you're saying how politicians tend to turn on a dime and all that, but historically, weren't most judges much more parts of sort of a political machinery? I mean, I'm not saying they were all yeah. hacks, but they were th- this meritocracy that we've right. got now where it has, you know, it takes these young people and crams them through Harvard and Yale and right. all the rest, and they're supposed to be sort of a priesthood of legal scholarship right. kind of thing. That wasn't the case with judges and even justices right. for most of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, right? No, absolutely. The, the sort of way we think about how a judge is coming up and who is an appropriate appointee to the court is a very recent innovation in that sense. And and really, in some ways, reflects um, specific calculations by the Eisenhower administration that um, um, the Eisenhower administration uh, partially is reacting against the Truman administration appointing a bunch of political cronies to the court. Um, Eisenhower thinks, well, I want to do the opposite of that, so I want to f- uh, do something that seems uh, much more meritocratic than that. Um, and he's in a politically uh, weak situation, so how can I more easily put people onto the court? Um, and the ABA at that time is still uh, fairly conservative. Mm-hmm. So, so Eisenhower sort of turns towards say, okay, let's have these professional lawyer types who get ABA approval, um, and we'll put them on the court. And that sort of sets a new standard that presidents wind up following, mostly Republican presidents wind up mm-hmm. following um, afterwards. If you look earlier in American history, it doesn't look like that at all. And so in the first several decades of American history, it's people who had prominent political positions uh, eventually wound up um, on the court and they were- they Earl were act- Warren, right? Right. And, yeah. and certainly later, you also still have people like Earl Warren and like through the late 19th and early 20th century, it was- Often private attorneys who didn't necessarily held um, political positions, but they were well connected to, pl- to political machines mm-hmm. um, and the like. And so the court's never been that distant from um, mainstream politics and political figures and, and how, how they operate. Um, so the current Supreme Court, what I mean by current, either it's the Roberts Court or the court of the last right. 20 years and all that sure. kind of stuff. How does it rank in terms of asserting judicial review in terms of? Overruling cases, you know, is it is it is it more status? Does it have more of a status quo bias or less of a status quo bias? 
you know, I think one of the interesting features of the court of late, both the Roberts Court and even the late Rehnquist Court, um, is that it so far ha- is less likely to strike down um, laws than the previous courts had been, um, both at the state level and the federal level. Um, court historically has struck down a lot more state laws than they struck down federal laws. And so part of what changed over the course of the Rehnquist Court as the, as the court became much more reluctant to strike down state laws. And so that had big consequences then as to how often the court striking down laws, period. Um, the court also is reversing, or at least formally reversing, fewer precedents than it um, used to. So it's, it's a, uh, in, in that sense, it's a more conservative, more restrained um, court than um, has been true for decades, really. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, the Roberts Court, I think, is um, uh, more active in statutory interpretation. So they do less work on the constitutional law front and more work um, just interpreting um, statutes. And um, they can sometimes get creative in how they how they interpret the, the statutes. And, and certainly it's a relatively conservative court from from that perspective. But um, but relative to the history of judicial review, it's it's a remarkably restrained court or has been at least up until now. So. All right. So changing years, you wrote. A book about uh, campus free speech stuff. Um, are we? How to put this? Is it? Is it as bad today as a lot of people on the right are claiming? And how would you define bad? <laughs> That's a good question. It's. Um, I think it's probably not as bad as a lot of people on the right are claiming, because a lot of people on the right are claiming it's really awful. And yeah. It's probably not that bad. Um, and one thing that's hard is it's hard to um, uh, know how to think about these things over time. So I think one thing that's changed relatively recently um, is that uh, every little campus incident is now national news. Um, it's possible to record it, make it go viral um, on social media in a way that just wasn't true 30 years ago. So when I was in college um, in the 1980s, um, you know, bad things happened that were um, uh, uh, unfortunate for conservative free speech, particularly on college campuses. Um, but hardly anyone knew about it, except right. for those of us immediately affected. Um, it did not get uh, widespread attention. So it's a little hard to know then, are we just are we more aware of what's going on in campuses or has something actually changed on college campuses? Um, I think over the last couple of years, we do seem to be having fewer instances of people shouting down speakers, for example. We have fewer instances of people disinviting speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I think we have more occasions where people aren't being invited to campus in the first place. Right. Um, so it's another one of these counting issues. How do you know what's sort of going on if, if people aren't getting invited and then they don't get shouted down? Um, that's still not good from an from a intellectual environment perspective. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't create the visible shouting down episodes that people uh, flip out about. Um and there is this tricky issue of sort of self-censorship by individual students. And I think there's just a lot of that on campus. There's a lot of sense of peer pressure um, of, of students wanting to um, uh, not um, get out of sorts um, with their um, own friends, not sort of thinking necessarily about what faculty think or administrators think, but they don't want to be out of line uh, with the other students. And that's just a really tough nut to crack in terms of how you get students to be more willing to speak up, be a dissenting voice when they perceive at least around them um, that everybody's going to likely disagree with them and maybe they're going to react very badly to that. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan Haidt, um, part of his argument is that it has less to do with the um, the policy environment of right. the campus and more to do with the way we're raising kids now, yeah, right? Yeah. And particularly elite kids, like the kids who mostly sure. go to Princeton, yeah. um, they come from schools like uh, the ones my daughter and her friends go to where right. 
the worst thing you can do is be a bully. The worst thing you can do is hurt someone's feelings. And I'm right. not for being a bully or hurting people's feelings. But if you have a zero tolerance thing for that, right. you tend to raise – if the worst thing in the world you can do is make some kid feel uncomfortable and they grow up in an environment where all interpersonal conflicts or a lot of interpersonal conflicts are adjudicated by third-party intercessors, they don't develop the sort of – muscle memory and self con- and thick mm-hmm. skin right so they're right. they're um they become fragile you know in a way and part of my argument has always been is that the left has been or the politically correct crowd has been right. waiting for these kids yeah for many generations because <laughs> um political correctness has been around right. depending on how you define sure. it for a long time but right. like having kids who literally can't tolerate dissenting points of view right. and consider it write stupid things like the Harvard Crimson type right. stuff about speech being violence and yep. all of these kinds of things, that is just natural feedstock for the mm-hmm. politically correct crowd. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's certainly part of it, is that um, uh, students come onto campus uh, with a somewhat different attitude about um, uh, certainly bullying and what counts as bullying, but also how willing they are to resist the herd in, in terms of... Um, what other people think and how they ought to react and respond to it. They are much more concerned with with getting along with um, mm-hmm. their fellow students in various ways. Um, and and that does seem partially generational and, and about how people are raised. Um, I do think there are policy issues in, on some campuses and those can be fixed. Um, I don't think policy issues are the main driver of a lot of these issues. Some campuses have very bad uh, speech-related policies. Um, but and but they are actually improving those and cleaning those those up. Um, but often those aren't. I think the crucial issue. I think you you also are probably suffering a little bit of the effect that, um, uh, especially in these elite college campuses, um, you do get ideological monoculture. There are relatively few conservatives on those right. campuses. That's also generational to some degree, right? A lot of the current generation of students are not conservative. Um, and so um, that isolates a minority, makes them feel even more of a minority, and it makes it even tougher than for people to say, well, look, there are reasonable disagreements here. We all have different views. Um, it's okay to express it. Um, instead, it's like, well, why are you the weirdo with the outlying view? Right. Um, and people then become much more reluctant to express that, and, and people become much quicker to want to uh, suppress that um, in, in those kinds of contexts. So that's certainly doesn't help either. Um, yeah, it doesn't help that the faculty ranks are also monoculture. I mean, the university faculty have become more left-wing over time. They were always left-wing, and now they've become even more left-wing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it creates an overall campus culture in which conservative voices are unusual. Um, they're seen as extreme, um, beyond the pale. Um, and so, and it uh, doesn't help when a lot of the conservative spokespeople absolutely. are extreme and beyond the pale. No, know? absolutely. Milo is not a huge strike for for the conservative cause in that. Absolutely. Case. So I think that is part of the problem. And so, um, so Princeton, I think, for example, benefits from the fact that my colleague Robert George has the James Madison program there that invites serious conservative scholars to campus to speak regularly. It helps that you have somebody who is a model of a thoughtful conservative who has different views but is capable of engaging real arguments and and like and he brings other people in who do that as well we do not tend to bring the milo types to campus um and so people see that there are other versions of conservatism and you can actually talk to people and have reasonable disagreements um if instead it's all about um you know having pie fights then it's a different story and um so I think conservative students also bear some responsibility of wanting to troll their fellow students yep. by bringing the Milos of the world in, um, and that's just not helpful, ultimately. Um, uh, 
it's partially that's a reflection of where the conservative movement seems to be no, no, these days I, as well, right? I agree with you. I, but I, so I, I do, actually, I, I have a question here, and I, I, I'm, I'm going to wear my, um, ser- my my sort of Russell Kirk conservative uh-huh. hat, here, okay. which I don't normally wear. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> it's a little too gothic for me, but um, <laughs> this idea that campuses are supposed to be yeah. Hotbeds of free speech right. is kind of a new idea to begin with, right? right? I mean, and if you go back and you look at the free speech movement at Berkeley and all that kind of stuff, there's all there is. It's sort of like what we were talking about at the beginning yeah. of this conversation. There's a lot of conventional wisdom that turns out not to be true about what all that was to begin with, Absolutely. right? And but like the the university, you know, someone will correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure. Traces back to the 12th, 13th century, something like that, right? I suspect that if you do that timeline from, say, 1200 A.D. to 2020 A.D., you're still looking at about 90% of that time where it would have struck you as really weird to say, oh, campuses are where uh, free speech should be maximally tolerated. That's where you really question authority and all of that kind of stuff um you know even even 70 years ago right. if you were um like uh one of the kids from dead poet society you get thrown out and right. i would argue because that's such a terrible movie you should be thrown out <laughs> but um uh so where does this idea how come we've all bought into this idea that um, I'm not talking about the scholars. Yeah. I'm talking academic freedom is a very different thing, right? Yeah, although that's also new. <laughs> that, I agree that's also new. Um, and uh, you know, th- and some interesting things happened, you know, in the progressive era on that sure, front as right? well with Charles yeah. Beard and others. Absolutely. But um, but it's a, but it is a different thing. Academic yeah. freedom yeah, versus yeah. students letting their right. freak flags fly. Yeah, where absolutely. where did this idea come from, and why has it become so bipartisan? Uh, so it is a relatively new idea. I think that's right uh, for student free speech in particular. Although, um, like I said, I think academic freedom itself is relatively new, and and as a consequence, I think both are relatively are fairly fragile. Right? Mm. Universities have really only been committed to these principles for a little over a hundred years for academic freedom, and maybe for fifty years on student free speech. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a very long time. Yeah. Uh, you can easily imagine them dramatically changing. So I start the um, uh, Speak Freely book. Uh, with an episode of students rioting uh, in response to an activist coming to campus at Berkeley um, uh, and tell sort of the story of what that riot winds up looking like. Um, And in that case, it was a temperance Mm -hmm. activist who came to campus um, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, But it looks exactly like the Milo incident. Yeah. Um, That would have caused me to riot. No, exactly. Right. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, but it's... uh, so, so I think that the, the campuses have always been, or long have been, um, uh, difficult places sometimes. But the fact that there's also a temperance activist coming to Berkeley campus, um, um, and, and she was making a campus tour across a lot of campuses, often getting arrested for her speeches um, in the process um, uh, during this period, also emphasizes that even in this period where student speech rights were relatively restricted, campuses were also places where people could bring in dissenting voices and, and expected there to be debates about public mm-hmm. issues. Um, and and so universities were trying to be home for that kind of thing, um, not always doing a great job of it. Um, so the relatively recent sort of student free speech um, stuff that emerges 
really out of the 1950s and 1960s is an effort to institutionalize that in some ways and give it a particular kind of form. Um, but it's consistent with this larger vision of universities being places where people generally can talk about controversial ideas and mm -hmm. you can voice um, controversial ideas on college campuses. And that shouldn't just be restricted to faculty. It should also include students. I think people like Russell Kirk would have been much more skeptical of that in part because they say, well, students are students. They don't know anything yet. And so right. why are they actually um, given this kind of expansive right? And so our current discussion about campus free speech is pretty muddled because we're combining simultaneously these debates about academic freedom, about scholars doing scholarly work and teaching um, with these debates about student free speech and outside speakers. And they really do rest on pretty different principles. They mm -hmm. depend on different practices. They have different histories about how they developed. They have different rationales as to why we justify them. I think they're both important, um, but um, but they are somewhat different, but they get jumbled up in how we think about college campuses. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that um, you were talking earlier about how politicians turn on a dime about institutions that are no longer helping their side. Yeah. If universities tomorrow started indoctrinating people into traditional values and all these kinds of things, as much as I might be in favor of a lot of that, right? right? You know, um, uh, I suspect you would have a lot more conservatives talking about how this is not really a place for free speech, and you would have a lot of liberals saying it was. And um, it seems to me it's more has to do with a sense of the universities are a certain kind of citadel in the culture war and anything that is inconvenient to the control that the people who currently hold it, um, is it, a project begins almost immediately to delegitimize those threats. Right. Um, you know, and I, I could see if, you know, I mean, it would be, I think it would be a much better country if we had, if you could say, oh, well, you know, Princeton is really conservative and Harvard's really liberal and Brown is sort of in the middle and all that kind of stuff. But the monoculture problem, I mean, right. I understand there are conservatives at Princeton and that's great, but it's not a conservative school. <laughs> it's just... How many conservatives does it take to make conservative schools? <laughs> if you've got more than a handful, it makes it a conservative school. Yeah, well, I, I actually believe in some of that, that you need a critical mass of people that, yeah. that people actually feel yeah, yeah, yeah. like they can go out a little bit on a limb, but... Um, Anyway, it's just remarkable how how you know, law schools are the same way. If you have more than two conservatives on the faculty, then suddenly people start talking about that's a very conservative law school. It's right. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you can't let the numbers get above two percent. That's really <laughs> becomes very risky at that point. They might infect everybody else. It's a um, no. I think the the when I go around giving talks on on censorship and and uh, campus free speech issues, for example. Um, you know, part of what I try to emphasize to students who might be sympathetic to those kind of speech restrictions um, is you have to think very seriously about who's going to control those speech restrictions and how they're going to apply them. And so it seems very weird um, for people on the left to be encouraging the idea we ought to be restricting speech and have more regulations for it uh, when you have the Trump administration. So mm -hmm. do you really want the Trump administration, for example, making decisions about what speech is allowed and what's not? And the answer, of course, is, well, no, no, I don't want the Trump administration to do it. I want our dean of students to do it right. because I really like our dean of students and they totally agree with me on everything. Right, right, like, right. You know, which, of course, in the 60s, it was the opposite reaction because and part of why I wind up telling us that well, in the 60s, people pushed back against the dean of students because the dean of students was way too conservative from their perspective right. and trying to crush all their speech. And so it does depend a lot on who do you think is going to enforce it and how confident are you. It's not going to be my speech that gets suppressed. It's somebody else's speech that's going to get suppressed. Um, and it's much easier to make those calculations if you're confident about the, those enforcements. And so... 
uh, my strategy in part and sort of I encourage people to think about free speech is to try to make them less confident about who's going to enforce it. Right. <laughs> you know, really sort of say, OK, you think you might control this today, um, uh, but you should not be so confident you're going to control it tomorrow. And as a consequence, you should be thinking about a set of regulations and rules um, that you're willing to live with even when somebody who has a different ideological commitment than you do um, gets to make those decisions. Yeah. I mean, it's um, it's basically, in a nutshell, my argument about federalism, right? Absolutely. Is I, um, it has always driven me nuts how every time there's a Republican president, the New York Times magazine or someplace like that will run some piece about how Oh, you know, there's this really interesting idea that when conservatives believed in it, it was a justification for Jim Crow and slavery. Right. But when we believe it, it's so that we can have um, non-pasteurized cheese sold in our commune and uh, and our microbrew beers don't have to get approved by the FDA and yada, yada, yada. And when Trump came along and all of a sudden, you know, it was right. amazing. Under Bush the the or under Obama, you had... You had people like Ted Cruz talking about the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, and uh, unbelievable number of people. Oh, this is this is secessionism. This is treason. This right. is unpatriotic. Right. And then the second Trump comes in, you have these people writing things like, "Oh, maybe California will secede." It's like, well, how is secession? Yeah. If if your definition of secession being treason, and I'm against secession. <laughs> I'm not talking about secession, right? right? But if if if, and I don't even think, and the Ninth and Tenth Amendment aren't secession either. But right. if your doctrine is is that Anything that you can interpret as secessionist is unpatriotic and evil based upon who's holding the White House. Maybe right. we need to tighten, loosen the grip of Washington on on everybody. And so rather than just do the normal column where I would beat up people for their hypocrisy, I, I'd right. rather have buy-in. Absolutely. No, that's right. I, I welcome my fair other friends on, yeah. on these constitutional issues, including federalism, particularly, but also larger issues, separation of powers and other things. Um I think we should recognize people are likely to be fair weather. They're going to abandon ship at yeah. some point. Um, but in part, I think the constitutional system and checks and balances relies on those fair weather friends, right? Mm -hmm. That, that um, you want somebody to want to defend federalism. It may not be the same ones that were going to defend it a decade ago, um, but they're willing to defend it right now, and that's helpful. Um, and so uh, a small handful of us may be relatively consistent about these things. Um, but but then you try to leverage um, the people who are willing to come to your side on this and, and do what you can to try to help build the sensibility that, you know, maybe these are actually valuable institutions. Maybe you actually do want to take some power away from Washington, for example, right. because on occasion you might actually lose the White House and, and then it will be bad. Um, and, and hope you can persuade some people to go along with that. Um, you know, one of the valuable things about courts is because courts have been or tend to be a little more consistent about these things. Right. They can actually defend some of those principles in ways that um, politicians and activists and the like um, tend to be um, a little less uh, reliable um, in, in protecting some of those things. Okay. Before we move off yep. of this and get to the impeachment stuff, which I do want to talk to you about at least briefly. Um, another one of my obsessions, which I will not bore listeners with the full thing, but this, it's a two-part thing. One is this notion that the three branches are co-equal, mm -hmm. okay? Yep. My understanding is that this is basically Nixonian propaganda, that this argument about how Congress and the president were co-equal was really not used until Watergate. Right. And if and I went and looked in the Federalist Papers, because I have an online version of it, and I counted... Something like the word co-equal appears like eight times, something like that, if you include the anti-federalists. And uh, all of the uses are about either 
the Senate's uh, power or status vis-a-vis the House. They're right. both co-equal branches right. of the legislature. Or the federal government's relationship to the state governments. Right. There's no talk about how Congress and the presidency are co-equal branches. And so I've become, and I never used to really be, and this is one of the Fairweather Friends things, I used to be much more sympathetic to the presidency, yeah. but it's not just because of Trump, it's sure. also because of Obama and also uh, some of the stuff that happened under W. Um, you know, it's the first branch of government. It's the first branch of the, uh, it's the first article of the Constitution. Congress can fire people in the executive branch mm-hmm. and in the judicial branch. It can declare war, it can raise taxes, which I think right. I'm on safe ground saying the founders thought taxes were important. Yeah. Um, it writes the laws. Right, right. Um, it declares war. I mean, it right. does it like yeah. it has a, like a lot of the really serious powers, right? right. Um, so uh, my, our friend Adam White, my recollection serves, completely whiffed on this. We've been arguing <laughs> about this ever since. Where do you come down on what, on this co-equal thing? And um, um, and second of all, after you've dispositively answered right. that by agreeing with me, right? Uh, is there any chance for Congress to reassert its role as the first branch of government? So I, I so I totally agree with you on the yes. on the uh, Article One. Take uh, that Congress white thing. I, absolutely. <laughs> so I, I do think Congress is and uh, the legislature is. I think from the perspective of the founding generation, the legislature is the most important institution. It's given all the central powers. I think the impeachment power is partially a reflection of the fact that um, the ultimate power to control the other branches is rested in Congress. Um, That's where the discretion ultimately uh, resides. Um, The other institutions are important. They're independent. They have their own authority, and and those are all uh, important. But the co-equal talk is a relatively recent innovation to talk about these things have all been co-equal. And I think it does do some violence to the constitutional scheme to think of it that way. so, so I'm actually with you a lot. I yes. think on the history and on the on the how. If the you would like to write a piece scheme. for the dispatch on this exact point, we would love to have it. But I, I, I actually would be happy to do that. <laughs> uh, that would be fine. Um, uh, I think though it's a real challenge to how the Congress can get back some of that authority. Uh-huh. Um, uh, we are we clearly see as as others are talking about. Um, the, the people who run for Congress and occupy Congress now are not vested in the institution. They are not concerned about those institutional powers and building them up. There's all kinds of political incentives um, for them not to be very concerned about building up that own, that institution. Um, and so as a, con- as a consequence, it's hard for um, Congress to exercise its authority um, in the long term and not lose it. It's also there are just practical governing problems that are actually really hard to figure out how Congress can exercise effective mm-hmm. authority. And so... Um, I taught a class on Trump and the Constitution in the last couple of semesters at Princeton. And so one of the things I try to get students to struggle with a little bit is, okay, you may not like Trump very much and how he's exercising power, but partially he's exercising the power because we've given, given it to him. We've given yeah. a tremendous amount of co- power to the president, partially through constitutional doctrine, partially through OLC opinions, partially through statutes over time. Um, and we've done it in part because we don't know what else to do, right. uh, because we want presidents to be able to do all the good things we want. And it's really hard to empower them to do good things and to restrict them from doing the bad things. Um, and he's exploiting that in various mm-hmm. ways. Um, and that's true in the war powers context. It's true in lots of other contexts as well. And Obama did, too. And Obama fairness. did, too. And yeah. the presidents before them did. Yeah. And so Trump is, I think, an extension of what we've seen from the presidency for uh, many years. Um, and, and they do reflect some really hard problems. And, and part of the interesting feature of Watergate and the pushback against the Nixon administration was Congress trying to restrict mm-hmm. the presidency, but not really having a good alternative. And so... Um, the fixes they offered were pretty half-baked and yeah. didn't do nearly as much as they wanted. 
um, in part because they still thought ultimately you need a president to be able mm-hmm. to do a lot of things we want them to do. So the War Powers Resolution is an example of that where um, you're trying to limit the president a little bit on war powers, but you're not doing anything too dramatic because um, at the end of the day, you still need the president to go off and sometimes fight some wars. Right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all fair. Um, all right. So quickly, uh, um, when Alan Dershowitz yeah. argued before this, the, the impeachment trial that um, that abuses of power that have a um, rationale to get the president elected – um, because they would be good for, it would be good for his the re- president's reelection chances if they were also good for the country or something along those lines, right. and that um, nothing that isn't criminal, right, uh, can be impeachable. Right. Um, I said something along the lines on I was on special report mm-hmm. and uh, on Fox, and I said something along the lines that the. You know, fine to acquit the president, but the Senate really needs to repudiate all of this because it's basically a hate crime against the Constitution. And uh, it was after the fact, and I, I got an enormous amount of grief for saying this, <laughs> um, that I found that you had written something similar. I don't yeah. want to say that you're on, we're on the exact same page. I think we're but, on very much the same page. But uh, why don't you sort of talk through why you see the Dershowitzian line to be problematic? Yeah, so Dershowitz, I think, is well outside the scholarly mainstream and how we think about the impeachment power. He's well outside historical practice about how we think about the impeachment power. I think it's inconsistent with the founders' design about the impeachment power. The impeachment power um, uh, is there in part to deal with the possibility of abuses. Um, And the framers in Philadelphia are partially worried about the president in particular. And so they apply it to uh, a wider set of officers. But what they particularly are talking about um, is we're going to create this very powerful office. He's going to have it for four years. Um, and that's a long time to wait if mm. the president turns out to be a tyrant. Um, and so you might have to act faster than that um, uh, before the next election in order to um, deal with the situation. And, and so you need some kind of mechanism to do that. And the impeachment power is the mechanism um, that they uh, borrowed from British practice and states had used it um, as well. So it was designed to do, and the examples they had in mind were examples of abusing discretionary authority. And so part of what they were thinking about is we're going to vest expansive discretionary authority in this figure. Um, That authority we need to because we think there um, are are important uses that will sometimes uh, need to be um, used for. Um, But that authority can be abused. And as a consequence, you need to have some kind of fallback solution if if that kind of discretionary authority is abused. Um, So Dershowitz's effort to say, well, if he's doing it within his lawful authority, if he's not breaking the criminal law, um, then it's just not impeachable is completely at odds with that notion and um, and effectively guts anything that the impeachment power would have been designed to do. I mean, didn't Madison say in the the ratification thing in Virginia that uh, the president has the power to give out pardons to cronies who do politically bad things, do criminal things on their behalf. But of course, that would be impeachable. No, absolutely. It's part of what they imagine are things like if if you're using the impeachment power wrong by pardoning cronies who are engaged in uh, nefarious schemes to help you as president, um, if you are removing people from office in order to replace them with lackeys who will do your bidding but will not do the public bidding, um, that's impeachable. Um, And you need impeachment power to be able to push back against those uh, kinds of issues. It is extraordinarily hard, I think, to impeach a president. And so Mm -hmm. as we've seen. Um, And so impeaching and removing a president, I think, is a really hard task for that impeachment power, despite the fact they wanted it for that purpose. Um, 
But most of the people we impeach are judges, and we right. and we impeach them in part for abuse of power, for exactly right. the same kinds of concerns. Is we don't wait, or we don't necessarily need them to break a law, um, a criminal law, um, in order to think, therefore, they um, are no longer fit for continuing to hold that office, and we need to remove them uh, from the. So I thought it was critically important in the Trump impeachment um, that. Even if the senators um, wanted to vote to acquit, and I think there are all kinds of reasons why you might think acquittal is appropriate in this context, um, that they at the very least not embrace the Dershowitz theory, but instead embrace something more like what Marco Rubio eventually winds up saying, um, which is this is very bad behavior. Um, It's within the scope of the impeachment power, but I don't think it justifies removal in this particular case. I think that's a perfectly reasonable conclusion to come mm-hmm. to, and certainly it's the right constitutional standard to think about, and it preserves the impeachment power then uh, for the future and how we ought to think about it in future contexts, not only for future presidents, but also for other government officials who might have used their power in, in, down the road. Yeah, no, and actually this, I mean, it's self-serving, but I, I gives me an opportunity to offer a correction of something I said on another, on the Dispatch podcast, which was, I said that. I think it was on the dispatch. It may have been on this one. I don't know. But I got an email. I got an email from a listener saying, "Hey, wait a second. And they were right, and I was wrong. Mm. I said that Romney's Romney was the only person to have a. Oh, that's right. It was the one with Josh Krauschauer. I said yeah. that Romney was the only one to vote on principle. And I think uh, right. I didn't mean to say it that way. It was in a political context where it made Susan Collins look unprincipled. Right. But I, I think Lamar Alexander's position. I don't think it was a profile on courage, but. It's a, it, as you say, it's a reasonable position to say this is not why we're going to remove a president for the first time ever because of right. all this kind of stuff. Um, but it seems to me like something I want to point out when we're talking about free speech, and I think it applies here too, is that it seems to me that almost all of the free speech controversies on campus would be much easier to adjudicate and 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 deal with if people actually took honor codes seriously, mm-hmm. right? right? That if, if you, you know, there are things that honor codes permit it, pr- prohibit you from doing, like using the N-word or, you know, calling people kikes right. or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And it's not a free speech ne- issue necessarily. Absolutely. It's just you're not supposed to do that kind of right. stuff because it's not what decent communities allow. Right. Similarly, if you have presidents who follow, in effect, an honor code, this is a very Uvalovian yep. point about uh, you know yep. conforming to the needs of an institution. If you follow an honor code, maybe you shouldn't be impeached for the things that Trump did, but you should self-regulate. And the fear of that, oh, I might be impeached for doing these things, right. would regulate you, right? Right. right. But that's all gone, or at least for the time being, it seems to be gone. I think it's gone, and and moreover, I think we've lost that sensibility. I've tried to write in various contexts. I have a book that I'm trying to finish that that talks about this as well, where um, partially the Constitution is a set of rules that provide the outer boundaries of what you're allowed to do. Um, But we also have a set of softer norms inside those boundaries that say what's appropriate and inappropriate for you to do within the context of the discretion that you possess. Um, And we've really lost our capacity to talk very effectively about that. And so instead, we've reduced it down to, and certainly Trump wants to take this and run with it, um, am I legally allowed to do it? And if so, then I can do it. Um, And that's sort of the end of the discussion. Instead of saying, well, look, there are some things you're legally allowed to do, but it'd be radically inappropriate and moreover actually damaging the constitutional system and not in good faith for the nature of your office for you to do it in those ways. And so as a consequence, you should restrain yourself from doing it. Um, 
But and impeachment's one tool, I think, actually, for trying to enforce that. But it's not the only tool available. But partially, it's also a question of social conventions and expectations. And so we actually need to create and maintain a political culture that is capable of telling people um, there, there are some choices you make that are actually inappropriate um, and inconsistent with your constitutional responsibilities, even if they're within the scope of your legal authority. Right. Um, and, and we just seem to have a very hard time doing it. And I think if we really totally lose that capacity to make those decisions, the constitutional system will not work nearly as well. And we will wind up with a lot more abusive acts um, out of government officials as a consequence. Yeah, I mean, the, the I mean, it, maybe this is a just so story along with the Marbury versus Madison stuff, but I was always taught that the constitutional structure that we have was so deeply informed by the model of George Washington. Right. Because everyone knew that he was going to be the president. Sure that you didn't have to you know put in restraints on bad character yeah. because it was like it was George Washington right, right. and if you don't have you know it's, it's, a, it's if men were angels point right yep. if if and this is a conservative lament for a very long time yeah, if yeah. you define things simply if the only barrier against doing something is the law then you've given up a big and important point about how you're actually supposed to live an honorable life. Yeah, absolutely. And, there, and there's a lot of um, thinking around the time of the American Revolution and the founding that eventually fades away. But during that period, it's, it's very prominent of, of emphasizing the idea of Republican virtue is crucial right. to how um, not only office holders, but average citizens ought to behave. And, and uh, many in that generation were convinced that if you lose that sense of virtue, um, which in part was a kind of public spiritedness about how you would behave um, and the ability to um, act with honor in this sort of Washingtonian sense, um, then the, your republic will eventually collapse. So you can't, you can't sustain it just on the basis of rules. Um, you need that virtue underlying it. Um, and, and we've spent a long time really chipping away at the virtue right. um, aspects of it. And um, I, I think there are some ways of trying to gap fill and make up for the fact that we don't have as much virtue as we would like. Um, but we have actually lost something by, by losing this concept and including this concept of um, there is appropriate self-restraint that has to be exercised by those who hold um, a political office. And, and that's more than just a question of what am I legally allowed to do. Um, as it says in the, in the national anthem, affirm thy soul in self-control. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, yeah, so as a consequence, um, um, and, and, and the impeachment power is one way of talking about that, right? right. And so, so one thing I found distressing about our recent impeachment episode um, was how we were talking about presidential power and how we were talking about what the impeachment power itself was for. Um, and the impeachment power historically has partially been about talking about people's public responsibilities right. and why we think that certain kinds of actions are properly characterized as abuses that they should not engage in. Um, and instead, we found ourselves sort of pushed into a situation where you had senators feeling the need to defend a perfect phone call and say, no, this was, everything's great, and this is actually what you ought to be doing as president of the United States, um, which is just a terrible direction to be, to be going down. Keith Whittington, thank you so much for doing this. Thank this you. was great. Um, the book is Repugnant Laws, Judicial Review of Acts of Congress from the Founding to the Present, um, particularly for all you legal-type witches and warlocks out there. Um, Everybody I've talked to about this says that this is sort of a debate-changing, hugely important book, and you should take a look at it. Or if you just care about American political history, you might find it interesting as well. Keith, thanks so much for coming on. <laughs>